This is episode 239 of Alohomora for February 17, 2018. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a fantastic episode of Alohomora yet again. I'm Eric Skull. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Katie Carty Hiley. And we have a repeat guest this week or this episode. Um, Alex Louder, you may remember her from episode 223 when we talked about the Super Slytherin house, the episode <laughs> that she named, actually. Ooh, and it was also yeah. the first episode I was on. Aww. Oh, Warm snap. Fuzzies. So we're so was happy I... to have you back, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, I didn't realize until after the episode came out, I looked at it on my phone. I looked at it and I said, oh, I think I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're super happy to have you back to talk about another Super Slytherin house. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like I, I think they just called to me. This, this is, is more funny. of a Super Slytherin shack, to be fair. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> Well, yeah, because what we're discussing today actually connects to some stuff that you said, Alex, in the last chapter discussion that you were on. But before that, uh, remind the listeners just a little bit about yourself, Alex, your house, your wand, all of that good stuff and how you got into Harry Potter. Sure. So I'm Alex. I'm a Hufflepuff. Um, My wand is Beechwood with unicorn hair core. Think now I'm starting to forget. I think it's ten and three quarter inches. If anyone's really curious, I definitely said on the last episode. I'm pretty sure I was right then. Um, <laughs> That's right. You're the most Hufflepuff, Hufflepuff. I am. It's it's a little silly. Whatever um, Hufflepuffed. <laughs> um, and I got into Potter a little bit later. I, I did read the first two books when I was, um, you know, age appropriate, if you will, ten, eleven, twelve years old. And then I didn't pick them up again for a while until the end of college. And my husband actually was doing a reread and he was talking about stuff that I had no idea what it was. And I read through the series following graduation um, at 23 years old. And I've been eyeballs deep in the fandom ever since. Love it. Awesome. Well, and we were so glad that you auditioned for this chapter uh, because as we mentioned, listeners, We are doing a chapter revisit this episode to another Super Slytherin house. Uh, We are re-examining Half-Blood Prince Chapter 10, The House of Gaunt. Please make sure to read the chapter before listening. This chapter was not chosen by you, the listeners. It was chosen by us, because we like Half-Blood Prince a lot. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) This is is one of my favorite chapters, easily, hands down. It's, It's so good. Yeah, it's where we start exploring the past uh, in depth, finally. Uh, uh, As a reminder, on uh, if you want to listen to the original episode where we examined this chapter, that would be number 128. And I believe Eric gave this episode its name. (laughs) Eric, can you remind the listeners of that episode name? It's Morphin Time. (laughs) (laughs) So good. And you have to listen to that if you want to hear Eric break Cat. Like, I've never heard her laugh so hard in my entire life. It's amazing. <laughs> it really, truly is. And I remember I re-listened to this episode. It had to be, yeah, it was definitely a re-listen because it was just uh, an, um, 
the evening that Fantastic Beasts premiered, I was driving to the theater, and when I have short drives, I just throw on an old episode of A Local More, and I got to the part where Eric was just making Cat laugh hysterically, and I sat in my car and just laughed by myself for a few minutes before I went to the theater. <laughs> oh, that's that's. Thank you for sharing that story, Alex. Uh, yeah, it was a good time, but you know, like that's cool. There are other hosts on this show. We all had a great time discussing it. Um, it's it's to revisit the Gaunts and to yet again talk about Voldemort's troubling lineage is a great pleasure. I'm glad to be back. It's been a little while since I've been gone and thrilled uh, to be on this episode with you guys talking about it again. I'm excited, too, because this is the first time that I'm talking about this chapter on the show. Because Katie and Eric were on... Uh, on this, or Katie, were you, you, you weren't no. on this one? No. It was so it was just Eric. Eric, Kat, and... Kat, and Allison? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's so, a really good no. one. So for Katie and I, this is our first time with this one. So this should be fun. It is. And it's one of my favorite chapters, too. So what's awesome. <laughs> uh, for this episode, we actually have two sponsors. The first I want to tell you guys about is Audible. Um, if you go to audible.com slash alohomora or text alohomora to 500-500 to get started, um, you can actually get signed up with Audible and get monthly credits towards audiobooks. And it's a fantastic service. You should definitely check it out. Um, that's audible spelled A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash alohomora, A-L-O-H-O-M-O-R-A. I gotta say, I just used it to sign up for the Eddie Redmayne narrates Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Nice. It's so awesome. good. Finally, I, I finally, de- I was doing this when we were setting up for the podcast. I just downloaded it through Audible, so I'm excited to listen to that later tonight. Nice. And I love that they have a text option now. Just text 500500, probably gets you set up with the app on your mobile device, and you're good to go. Yeah. Love that. And then our second sponsor is through Patreon. We have Elizabeth Belisario this this episode um, sponsoring us. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. Love Yay. having you as a sponsor. You're fantastic. Uh, if you would like to become a sponsor of Alohomora, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Alohomora and you can check out all the different tiers. You can get into Dumbledore's office, our Facebook group. Uh, you can get a decal for your car or computer or whatever. Uh, you can get private readings from Michael. You can even get a vintage Alokomora yeah. t-shirt. And a Skype... Oh, I forgot about this one. And a private Skype chat with the host of your choosing. That's awesome. So yeah, <laughs> lots of cool stuff to check out over there. You should totally head over and just see if uh, it's something you're interested in. And sign up if you want, because we would love to have you. And listeners, before we uh, start this episode proper, we also want to take a minute to do what we are calling the Shout Out Maxima. I'm so glad that has caught on <laughs> for the name of this segment. It's perfect. Uh, because, uh, as we have discussed on a previous episode, listeners, we are uh, we are removing the recap uh, audio file and because we want to kind of just incorporate your comments more into the show rather than uh, outside of it separately. Uh, and I wanted to shout out Maxima to a few of you um, from our episode. Actually, that was a uh, that was another chapter reread. That was the Madness of Mr. Crouch from Goblet of Fire. And there were some great comments there, uh, but I wanted to specifically highlight uh, Susan for tracking down Rolling Statement about who invented Patronus messaging. 
Uh, she dug around and found it from Rowling's old site, which, listeners, you can uh, find that if you use the Wayback Machine. Uh, you can actually find the page where Rowling describes it, because uh, that was actually something the hosts called out on that episode for you listeners to do, and Susan came through. Uh, and the answer to the question is Dumbledore. Dumbledore did, in fact, invent Patronus messaging. Thank you, uh, Susan! So, and, we, and Susan also noticed the connection of the eagle owl that appears, um, in, uh, I think either in that chapter or the previous chapter to indicate how long Crouch had been out of captivity because you guys were unsure about the dates, um, on that. So it was another watch that owl in the sky, kind of the same trick from Sorcerer's Stone, um, that Rowling used again. Uh, I wanted to also shout out to Diskid, not Dad Kid. Not, not Dad Kid? Are you sure it's not Dad Kid, Michael? It's never Dad Kid. It's oh. always Disc Kid. <laughs> For doing a great summation of the history of the relationship between the press and the public, there was um, some especially interest, interesting stuff that came out of some history from the 20s, which I thought was really interesting. And that was kind of in relation to what you guys were talking about in that chapter about uh, the reporting on the love triangle, quote unquote, uh, between Harry Hermione and Victor Crumb. And then finally, uh, we had a whole chain of comments from Lisa, Arthur Dent, Davy V. Jones 999, and Mars is Bright Tonight uh, for their conversation on why Crouch Jr. didn't just kill Harry straight away. Because um, <laughs> everybody was just like, well, why didn't he just like enchant his pillow or something to be a portkey? Uh, and actually, a lot of you in that conversation came up with really logical reasons for why that may have not been the case because that is a big plot point that i think is often cited by the fandom as an issue um so it was nice to see that conversation grow so you can check all of those comments and conversations out and add to that discussion over at alohomorapodcast.com yeah it's huge thanks to all of you and for switching over to our new site figuring all that out not that there was much to figure out once you got there but you know what i mean um <laughs> we're just happy that you're back we missed you guys so much so yes we're very super much. thankful to be chatting with you again and you bringing up all these amazing things and making us rethink our own thoughts and theories etc you're wonderful we love you keep it up um, got one more favor to ask of you before we get on to the chapter summary. If you could please go to survey.libsyn.com slash Alohomora. There's a really quick survey we want you guys to fill out, and it's just basically getting your demographics because we want to tailor this show to our listeners the best that we possibly can. Um, so if you could please do that again, it's survey dot, and I'll spell this L-I-B-S-Y-N.com slash Alohomora. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And with that, we jump into the pensieve for the chapter. Three turns should do it. Chapter revisit. Half-blood prints. You see, you see, oh, stacky slicker on the floor. Chapter ten. You'll be good to Morphin, or he'll nail you to the door. The house of Gaunt. After spending a few lessons with the Half-Blood Prince's book, Harry becomes enamored with its ability to place him at the top of the class and ponders over the identity of its previous owner, while Hermione grows wary of the book's contents. But Harry's attention is soon shifted to his first private lesson with Dumbledore, who reveals that the secret to taking down Voldemort is not powerful spells, but memories. 
Diving back into the pensive, Harry explores the recollections of former Ministry of Magic employee Bob Ogden and his encounter outside of Little Hangleton with Slytherin's parcel-tongue-speaking descendant, the prideful and irrational Marvolo Gaunt, <laughs> his unbalanced son, Morphin, and, most importantly, his quiet and put-upon daughter, Merope. As Ogden escapes the encounter, briefly running into Tom Riddle Sr., Harry and Dumbledore reflect on how the events that transpired would lead to Voldemort's beginnings, and Harry quietly wonders how the ring on Marvolo's hand found its way into Dumbledore's office. Such a good chapter. Chinese fireball, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) You need to do that on every episode you're on from now on, Eric. So the it's funny because oh, go ahead, go ahead, I, was, please. I was just going to say, the funny thing is you're all praising this chapter. And actually, out of all the memory chapters, this one's my least favorite. Oh, really? Oh, oh dare you. you like the one with Hepzibah Smith and what is it? Tossie or Winky? Hokey. Or... Hokey. 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 Tossie. Come on. Tossie. <laughs> yes, Hepzibah's, Hepzibah's chapter is my favorite. Is it actually. just because you're a Hufflepuff and I'm a, a would-be like poser Hufflepuff no. who should care more <laughs> no. about it? No, no, it's it's because I th- I like the tension in that chapter. That's it, um, it's pretty I, good. I, it's ri- it's written so well, and I think uh, like seeing Tom in those memories is really ex- even the chapter with Dumbledore and and Tom is really more intriguing to me. Just yeah, it, that Tom you kind of are on the edge of your seat. Like, what will he say? What will he do next? Yeah. Kind of. I I get it, but for this one being the only ones to feed the only chapter to feature the gaunts at all we we do hear mention a little bit of voldemort's mother in the orphanage chapter but i mean this is voldemort's direct descendants we always knew you know back from uh chamber of secrets that voldemort was the last uh descendant of salazar slytherin himself meeting the next couple removed meeting like his uncle his mom and his grandfather in one massive chapter is like Super, super exciting. And this is the only chapter in which they appear, meaning that it's definitive, you know, like what we the the impressions that we get of them, although it is, you know, fairly short and quick, mm. uh, is meant to illustrate just what kind of people that they are. And, you know, honestly, it's not necessarily the most comfortable chapter either. There's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of, you know, uncool things that are going on with you know, between these, the members of this family, Dumbledore and Harry are there, you know, you really just get a a re-familiarization of how kind of cool it is to be spectators in, you know, this being a pensive scene, but you really do kind of get all the sense you would ever need of what Voldemort's family was like. And this is the Mm -hmm. oldest memory. I love how it takes us all the way back to the 19, God, what is this? Mid 20s? Or late-ish. Oh, gosh, it would have been. Yeah, I mean, it would have been... If he wasn't even... If he was born... If Voldemort was born in 27 or something, then, yeah, this is the early 20s. Yeah, 26. End of 26. Yeah. So, yeah, this is like the mid-20s. It's so cool. And I love anything to do with ancestry. Like, this has been a thing of mine since I was a kid when Sweet Valley High did this Sweet Mm. Valley High saga. Sweet Valley High. Oh, my God. I I read all the Sweet Valley... I had every single Sweet Valley Twins book. 
I'm not ashamed. And then I was into Sweet Valley High and they did, uh, and I still have it, Sweet Valley Saga. And it, it did this. It went back like a generation or two and it was talking about all of their ancestors and the similarities between them and the current day people. And I just thought that was fascinating. And so anything like that that I ever come across these days, I am such a sucker for. So this chapter just drew me right in. I'm like, oh yes, give it to me. Give me all the history, please. I love it. You just made me think of... Uh... Another series where I really loved a major time jump like that was in, if any of you watch uh, Avatar The Last Airbender or The Legend of Korra. Ooh. In The Legend of Korra, they actually went back to who the first Avatar was and explained a lot, and it ended up tying into the series. Um, really importantly, it was super cool, and it was animated all neat. It had all these references to like Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. Uh. So, yeah, which is also a good series that you should be watching, listeners, if you're not watching that, <laughs> if you like Harry Potter. Just a side note. Anyway, um... <laughs> But uh, speaking, but before we get into all these memories, actually, we have another little matter to deal with, which is the Half-Blood Prince's book, because that's been featuring uh, a, a quite a bit in Harry's uh, curriculum these days. And I think, Katie, you had a point to start us off with. I did. And I also realized um, as I was getting ready for this episode that they're only like a week into the the term I want to say semester that's not really the term they use over there but it's like a weekend and it's on chapter 10 already I'm like wait the school year just started that's crazy but just all this stuff happens up up uh, leading up to that um so he's only had the book for about a week at this point but already Hermione is just not having it and he's already making a name for himself with Slughorn in the potions class and schooling everybody because the Half-Blood Prince is telling him what to do and he's doing it. Um, but as I was reading about it this time, I'm like, okay, Hermione, instead of just saying Half-Blood Prince is a horrible person and you should turn that book in and it's not the official rules, so you're doing it wrong, whatever. When she saw that Harry was clearly having more success with the potions using that those instructions, why didn't she not, I mean, not like turn him in, but be like, hey, professor, do you agree with li what Libatius Borage has told us to do in this chapter? Or are there things you would do differently if you were personally making this potion? Or what are some other books you would recommend on potion making? Because I don't feel like I'm getting a full education with just this one. Like there are other things I feel like she could have done if she really wanted to improve her potion making instead of just complaining that the book they were using was wrong. That's interesting. Do you think that speaks to some of Hermione's actually failings and limitations that at times she can be so stuck to the rules that she can't, she maybe doesn't even think of that option? Yeah, you're probably right. She doesn't think outside the box too often. Also, she's not very thinking like she's she's sh the other issue is that she's one. She kind of is in a bit of a moral bind with Harry using the book. And I think she's trying not to hint at anything. That's she she up. won't expose him. Right. No. Like I at this time, like there are other things she could have done that would still would not have exposed him, but would have helped her learn herself like she's at this point realizing oh there's more to potion making than just following instructions that yeah. it is an art form um so i feel like if she the funny thing is i wonder if she, like it feels like she doesn't get that though because her insistence to harry is that she by following the instructions she should be getting what she wants mm -hmm. and and she's not getting it but she's not like 
using that as kind of a cue to maybe say, oh, maybe this isn't the right thing to do. And it's funny, too, that Slughorn is attributing this all to just natural potion-making skills, but not maybe asking Harry what he's doing differently that's affecting the potions. Yeah, Slughorn is all too willing to believe that Harry is a prodigy because it buys into his own kind of Mm. feeling of self, like the weird thing that he's got going where he collects students of talent. Um, So I think he's willing to look the other way. But yeah, I, I love the idea, Katie, your point, that Hermione could ask, well, Professor, aren't there alternative means of procuring you know or like preparing some of these ingredients or what effect i mean i think at at having a a year six out of seven education level for potions things like grinding instead of uh crushing should have come up you (laughs) you know already (laughs) like that's kind of the deeper you look like the more it's a failing of rolling to and to get specifically into any one subject we hear a lot about a lot of different subjects and what they're working on and you know like at one point in this chapter hermione's working on an essay for like the principles of rematerialization or something you're just like there's so much like little stuff but like something like the preparation of ingredients would be we should already know that that is an option if it is um the reason we haven't is of course it's all tied into just the prince being who and what he is being so good at it. But like, I think ultimately the answer is everybody's kind of hung up on their own personal thing. And, and Harry's on a um, admiration phase with, with the book. Right. And he, that the prince can do no wrong. I wonder too, if they've been a bit spoiled since Snape has been giving them, giving them instructions up into this point himself. Like it, sounds like most of the time he just writes stuff on the blackboard they don't even use a textbook so they're Mm -hmm. getting from the source like a insanely talented potion master how to do things the best possible way and slughorn instead is just here's a book i'm sure it's fine follow those instructions instead of doing it himself i think that's been posited by the fandom before that when snape puts up his instructions he's using his modified instructions yeah um so that's why it's and that might also be what accounts for his potion classes being surprisingly challenging for their level Mm. too um and would also account for why hermione is getting correct results up to that point and not having as much trouble i was Um, just gonna say that michael like so when you guys were talking about why Hermione struggles with Harry following alternate instructions. If you think of the subjects where she's very astute, it's transfiguration and charms and history of magic. And if you think of ancient runes for that matter, from what we hear, it's very exact sciences. And you just, and you guys just mentioned how potions can be an art form. I don't think Hermione has the, um, I don't even know the wherewithal to even think of nuances outside of the instructions in front of her. And if she was doing really well in potions following exactly what Snape was doing in prior years, which essentially is what Harry's following right now. And now she's following another text just happens to not be the best one. And she's getting poor results, but she's not thinking, Oh, well there must be something wrong with the instructions. She's thinking there's something wrong with me because she had been getting fine results up until then. Oh, yeah. Nice point. 
Yeah. I like it. Poor Hermione. <laughs> I know. She's just so hung up on authority. And like and Katie was mentioning, why didn't Hermione bring up to Slughorn? Oh, professor, did you ever consider X, Y, or Z? I think that even as much as Hermione has grown up until this sixth year, she still is very hesitant to question authority. Yeah. And it's a professor she doesn't really know. They've right. just started right. classes with him. I could see that. But with Hermione in mind, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about her thoughts on the prince. Yes, because I freaking <laughs> love Hermione in so many ways. But <laughs> this is one of the ones that sticks out to me when they're, I think Harry and Ron are talking about who the prince could possibly be. And they refer to him as a him uh, or himself. And she says, or herself. And I'm just like, yes, go for it, girl. Tell him. <laughs> It's like, yes, I realize Prince typically refers to a male, but I just love that she's challenging them and saying, hey, just, you know, just because it's a talented wizard doesn't mean it's a male wizard. Like, witches are just as talented, so don't just go assuming. And in the end, it she wasn't completely wrong. It had to do with a female's name. Um, but I just, I loved that point that she pointed out. And I think uh, Alex had something to say on that, too. Yeah, so that this always struck out to me too. And I was listening to the audio version earlier and Stephen Fry delivers it just like that or herself. And it made me think mm -hmm. of in Deathly Hallows when, you know, grumpy, hungry Ron is cranky about food and he's like looking at Hermione like, why aren't you figuring this out? And she's like, oh, I suppose it's because I'm a girl. And he's like, no, it's because you're the best at magic. And I think this can highlight where we kind of call magic the the equalizer in this universe where there aren't as many of the same um, gender hangups as there are in the quote muggle world. And I think this is where Hermione's muggle upbringing really comes out because her first thought is like, oh, well, you're treating me different because I'm, I'm not a boy. And Ron's like, well, no, of course not. That's, that has nothing to do with it. But it's, it shows that that different dynamic that they both grew up with, even though Ron's, you know, Molly is, the the homemaker and the caretaker and the excellent cook in the family and she's also a woman but ron i guess sees that as she's just really really good at magic and we're just really not <laughs> i i like that point a lot <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah i love that because we talked a lot about that in deathly hallows in that moment and kind of pondered if there are these hang-ups in the wizarding world because hermione bothers to mention it um and I think we've we talked at that time that there were some examples that we were like, mm, maybe this is a little bit of an issue, but it doesn't really seem to be something that wizards get hung up with as much as their own stuff of their own making. Mm -hmm. I like that you mentioned too, Alex, that she teases the handwriting oh um, yeah yeah and she, she she's like well it's, it's looks like a girl's handwriting see like, i got where based is on what <laughs> how are yeah how are we I, I actually am confused about that a little bit like it's described as what like a cramped i uh, typically when i think of girls handwriting i think of like there's a flourish to it it's, it's definitely more legible than my handwriting but what <laughs> does she mean by it and what's the significance i'm simply forgetting at this point I think she's just stretching her argument as far as she can make it go. I yeah. think so too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think like that's kind of the point where she's just like, and it looks like a girl's handwriting too. 
Like, I'm just like... That settles it. (laughs) I've got nothing else. (laughs) I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's her mic drop moment. She's like, it's a girl's handwriting. I'm done. (laughs) Well, and as Katie, you touched on a little bit, and Harry follows up all of Hermione's theorizing with how many girls have been princes, which is an excellent line. And the way that Rowling not only has Harry phrase it, but also the fact that she capitalizes prince um, oh. in that sentence for us visually, which I never noticed before. Um, this is just, uh, this is th- some excellent, uh, not only is it excellent, laying of her clues but it's also simultaneously misdirection on Rowling's part she's giving you something and she's uh trying to muddle it up at the same time and she does it so well with just these simple questions of the gender of the of the half-blood prince um it's really that this is where the writing just gets so clever on Rowling's part fun question just for funsies because i know we asked this before in the half-blood prince discussion who did you guys think the Half-Blood Prince was? Or who did you want it to be? Hmm. I mean, I wanted it to be Aberforth, give the man a redeeming quality. You know? <laughs> um, I like that. Yeah. Nope, I've never heard anybody say that. That's a nice one. I mean, you know, I, I, if I could remember, like if I, I got it was like 18 when this came out. Um, and the Half-Blood Prince, the identity of the Half-Blood Prince was a big thing in the marketing like and I, I'm sure some of you have yours if you got these. I still have my box that the books came in, or that the book came in, and on the side it says, "Who is the Half Blood Prince?" Like, it was, was it multiple choice? Hard. Like, was it no? Because <laughs> I think, like, honestly, like I just I my recollection is that I didn't know, and that my and that furthermore I was just interested in the journey. Like I wasn't actively like I, I sure i was curious and like every time it was brought up in the book who could this person be i was there for it but i didn't i don't recall having a theory i don't recall having a theory until until it was revealed because i didn't care as much about it as the marketing wanted me to care yeah about it. i think i did the exact same thing like i'm not one to try to figure out things ahead of time i like to be surprised um like I don't even read the inserts in books sometimes because I I don't even want to know the summary because I'm afraid it'll give away too much. Um, so I don't think I if I had a theory at all I probably thought maybe Tom Riddle, but mm. I don't. Yeah, I wasn't really trying to figure it out. I was just like, oh, they'll tell me eventually and it'll be awesome, whatever it is. <laughs> but I Tom certainly Riddle did not. Tom writing books. I definitely did- thought it was James until Lupin crushed my dreams. Oh, that was really it, though. That like I, I'm kind of the same as Katie and Eric. Like, I wasn't, I really wasn't hurting to figure out who it was, but like I casually was like, oh, maybe it's James. Oh, I guess it's not. Oh, sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I guess oh, it's, it's not James because Lupin said it's not, and also he's not half blood, so obviously. And then I think after that was squashed, I kind of just gave up. I just like, oh, I don't care. I'll figure it out later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I. I gave up and had the same amount of disappointment as you around the same point, Alex. I was more enthusiastic about trying to figure out who it was than you guys, apparently. But I just, like, because of bias, I was just immediately like, it's Lupin. Lupin's going to be the half-blood prince. How cool. And then, of course, Lupin was just like, there are no princes in the wizarding world. Also, it's not me. I was just like, boo. 
And then I was fine with it when Sectumsemper came up, and I was like, oh, okay, good. I'm glad it's not Lipin. Right. <laughs> he doesn't need another strike against him, spell. man. Yeah. He's not even really in the book, and if we had to find out, the only thing he contributed to the book was, like, a horrible cutting spell. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No. Not ideal. So I wasn't too upset after that. Uh, listeners, you may have probably figured out by this point that we are around the part where Trelawney whips out her playing cards. Uh, we're gonna kind of gloss over that because that discussion was, uh, gone to in very deep depths in episode 128. Um, you can explore that, uh, to see what the cards mean. (laughs) (laughs) You can also listen to that episode to see how Eric decided which cards would represent who. Um, but uh, yeah, go go to the old episode to explore that one. It goes very. Cat went very in depth with her research on that, um, and definitely try looking up. I what I will say is try looking up um, your on your own some of uh, the symbolisms for those different cards because there's actually a lot of different ways to interpret those cards. Um, but yeah, have fun with that. Enjoy the enjoy some uh, quality time with your playing deck. Indeed. But we'll we'll run right past Trelawney. Because we want to avoid her as much as Harry did, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll we'll go straight up to Dumbledore's office, um, because Dumbledore has uh, some stuff to tell us, uh, including the fact that now we're actually going to learn everything. Apparently, <laughs> right. uh, you know he says and, that about once a year, and I just don't know if we can trust him. <laughs> well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read this quote because I think this needs to be read in full because it's kind of actually. It's it, it, it's funny how Harry kind of responds to this, too. Mm-hmm. But Dumbledore says, or uh, first Harry says, You said at the end of last term you were going to tell me everything, said Harry. It was hard to keep a note of accusation from his voice. Sir, he added. <laughs> and so I did, said Dumbledore placidly. I told you everything I know from this point forth. We shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets of wildest guesswork. So, yeah. Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty cool, he plays it pretty cool. You know, Harry comes to him with this whole angsty, uh, you said you were going to tell me. He's just like, and so I did. He plays he plays it real cool. He's like, Well, we're gonna speculate, Harry. It's gonna be fun, you and me. But uh <laughs> You gotta you gotta love Dumbledore's little white lies, right? Oh yeah. Do you do you gotta? <laughs> okay, maybe <laughs> you not. gotta if you wanna survive. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I do love that Harry kinda stands up to him though. Like, hey, you said that last year, dude. Like, yeah, that's real nice. What? And then he asks him, Does this is this gonna help me survive? And Dumbledore still plays it cool. And he's like, uh, I certainly hope it would help you survive. <laughs> but I know full well it won't. Jerk. I really like, I, I, I like that the solution, though, is learning about Voldemort rather than a spell, like, kind of, you, as you point out here, Katie. Because I, I think that's so unusual fair series like this for a fantasy series where it's that you actually have to learn about the person your enemy yeah uh i think that's more i think that was something that 
really nobody particularly saw coming for this book and why Half-Blood Prince is such a good book. That's a, a really good point. Because otherwise he'd just have to like go to the far reaches of somewhere and collect something and it would give him untold power that will allow him to defeat evil, right? Or mm-hmm. if he's pure of heart. But it, this is actually a situation where learning more about his enemy and sort of predicting the psychology behind his enemy is going to really give him the um, the upper hand. Well, yeah, because, like, as far as a spell, like, what, you know, what would we as readers be expecting? Like, Dumbledore would be like, I invented this 12-part spell that I will be teaching you one part per lesson. It's called Expecto Patronum Maxima. Yeah, I mean, I guess, <laughs> like, I guess, you'd, I guess you'd totally, like, well, no, I mean, Expelliarmus Maxima. I mean, Expelliarmus does... <laughs> Does actually kill Voldemort in the end. Uh, let's let's. It's called Expecto Patronum Expelliarmus <laughs> Rictus Sempra. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Flopendo. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, like it, that would be, and I think Rowling knew that wouldn't be anything exciting. So although. And, he could have at yeah, least yeah. taught him the whole Patronus communication thing that the Order uses. That would have been so helpful. Well, any one of them can teach him that, too. Like, Kingsley could just take Harry as I'd be like, it's time you learned this. But he didn't. Rude. <laughs> well, he didn't. Actually, her mom well, didn't even teach him. She knew, and she's like, oh, yes, I'm just going to go talk to people with this. Bye. Well, I think, too, that the thing is Dumbledore, we, what we kind of do know is that at at, Dumbledore's plan did not necessarily include him dying right at the moment he died. He probably seemed to we've 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 posited that he maybe thought he had a little more time. Yeah, interesting. Um, so there might have been some more defensive things he was planning to incorporate for Harry, but didn't get around to. But you're um, right. Like teaching him how to fly, like Voldemort, like that would not have helped him in the end. Oh man, but wouldn't that be cool? It'd be pretty okay. cool. To come I, into his office. I want flying lessons to teach with you Dumbledore. To fly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, it's also it's funny. It's a very Gryffindor impulse for Harry <laughs> to think that a spell is what he needs. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, dueling is going to be the solution to this problem. Right? Yeah. No, um, Harry's not that powerful. I'm sorry. I mean, the <laughs> it's worth asking. Did Dumbledore tell every tell Harry everything that he knew at the time? Is that correct? No, no, that's that's completely and utterly false. Um, it 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 couldn't actually be any less true if Dumbledore had, <laughs> if Dumbledore had tried to make that so like the end of Order of the Phoenix is Harry's in all caps mode. It's all caps Harry, and Dumbledore is playing damage control a little bit. And frankly, he's appealing to Harry's capacity for feeling as though Dumbledore loves him to convey that he is loved and protected when in fact all it is is more lies um, mm-hmm. Alex you had some points about that here yeah so in summary no um, <laughs> excuse me <laughs> you know Dumbledore is still playing this very close to the chest very according as close to according to his plan as possible because you can kind of see that yeah, he probably died earlier than he meant to, and I don't think he really foresaw Draco really jacking anything up with the unbreakable vow and all that stuff. Like, I don't even, I don't think he could was he would have been able to account for, you know, the attempted murder that would happen that year. 
Mm -hmm. Um, but that's jumping way ahead. So he still didn't tell him everything and he's still telling kind of half the stuff to Snape, half the stuff to Harry, but I don't know if we know, or if I just forget that conversation that Dumbledore and Snape have when Snape's like, well, you don't tell me anything. What do you, what do you tell Potter when you're huddled up like this? Um, and then Dumbledore's like, well, I'm going to tell you, and then you can't complain anymore. And as I say that, I realize it's probably after they've had a couple of meetings, but mm. Dumbledore is definitely separating his information to not give too much to one person. Cause he kind of mentions it later when he says, I don't want to give all of my information to someone who spends so much time around Voldemort or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he at least knew maybe even if he didn't know the word Horcrux was involved yet, although I think he did probably by the end of the last book, he at least knew something screwy was up with Harry and Voldemort's connection because he avoided Harry the entire last book. So, oh, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's yeah. a pretty damning uh, indictment of, of, of Dumbledore, actually. Yeah, we just don't know the timeline of when he collected all of these memories, in which order he collected them, when he pieced, you know, pieced together these bits of information to do his amazing guesswork. But we can at least know he knew something was going on there that he did not divulge to Harry. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Dumbledore really plays up that the Horcrux connection or Horcruxes being involved is something that he actually kind of definitively was able to claim a little later in the game. When he was already suspecting it by Chamber of Secrets. Um, oh, yeah. Because of what happened with the diary. Mm-hmm. He just got his confirmation farther down the line. Which, of course, is why Chamber of Secrets is so connected with Half-Blood. And why, actually, as we found out later, Rowling transferred a lot of plot points from Chamber of Secrets to Half-Blood Prince. That's right. Because um, she was going to reveal probably a little too much too soon. Um, but... Yeah, no, that's I. I mean, I would I would also agree that Dumbledore didn't tell Harry everything, and we know there's one big piece of information that he's keeping under wraps um, because he's uh, already agreed to Snape not to tell. Um, so no, he didn't tell Harry everything. What I thought was interesting was because I always not only read this as narratively as a piece for you know Harry and his personal satisfaction, but. Even though I see this as a piece of, you know, narratively for Harry to get the satisfaction from Dumbledore and for Dumbledore to clarify what's going on, I always kind of read this as a response from Rowling to the fandom for what happened with Order. Because Order got some, Order got good reception, but the fans were kind of like, especially after Dumbledore did make his big dramatic statement of "I'm going to tell you everything." Well, and that, and and then that got everything... put on the cover too, right? Like, yes, yeah, yeah, it got heavily promoted. And then for the result to be basically boiling down to one of you has to die. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, we knew that already. <laughs> well, then, yeah, look, this this achieves a lot. It shows that she, even if she's not willing to give up more info. She, there's a sort of a promise that these lessons in this book are going to help like mm-hmm. towards that. It, it just, it, it knocks off several birds with one. It's really clever and brilliant her doing it this way. And speaking of a clever, brilliant piece on Rowling's part, I actually wanted to talk about this moment where Dumbledore tries to open the little vial that has 
the memory, the first memory in it. And Alex, it looks like you had a thought here, actually. Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting because I, I, I listened to the, the audio uh, version of the chapter earlier today. And that Dumbledore's first reaction is to open it in a more muggle way, just uncorking the bottle and you know pouring the contents into the pensieve. And then he very quickly transitions to opening it with magic when he's unable to use his decrepit hand to do it. And Harry's all ready to jump in and help also in the muggle way, I would assume. And nope, Dumbledore's like, oh no, it's fine. This is the super other easy way to do it. Pop, like all done. And it also made me think of all the way back in Sorcerer's Stone, are you a witch or not? It's kind of like, (laughs) there seems to still be, uh, even though Dumbledore, as far as we know, grew up in a completely magical household, there's just still some people that magic's not their first instinct somehow. Dumbledore likes twisting the cap off of potions. It's like reading a book versus an an e-reader. You're like, I just like the pages. Yeah. That little little (laughs) pop sound it makes when you do that. (laughs) Kind of cool. Maybe he didn't want to be you know, a show off and just constantly. Doing magic. <laughs> Let's be real, Harry. I could uh, whip the top off this memory capsule uh, in <laughs> 0.5 seconds, but <laughs> you know, I actually think because this this kind of speaks to something that we see in the other books. I my mind immediately jumps to Fred and George apparating everywhere in order of the Phoenix just because they can, <laughs> not because they have to, or. Harry, I think, on the morning of his 17th birthday, doesn't he, like, summon his glasses or do something because he can? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. he's like, I have magic now. I think that my thought with that would be that Dumbledore, being as wise as he is, is very aware that being completely dependent on magic is lazy and dangerous to some degree. And that perhaps he because there are other things i'm sure we could probably find in the other books where dumbledore does more the muggle way than he does the wizarding way and because it's a simple thing um that shouldn't require magic to do and there's a great uh, listeners if you have um the wonder book book of spells game or if you can look you can actually look it up online too um there's a story about that rolling wrote about a wizard who was extremely lazy and uh, just became very, like he'd sit around and he became very fat because he didn't do anything all day. He never got up from his little fainting couch. And uh, eventually he ended up like, he was so tired of people demanding things of him that he went and lived in like a cave because he just couldn't take people's demands anymore. (laughs) And then he was like, I need food. So he summoned... (laughs) He summoned a bunch of animals and they all landed on top of him and killed him. Um, so <laughs> I think there is a theme in Harry Potter from Rowling that magic doesn't solve all problems. And Dumbledore, I think, would be wise enough to be aware of that. Yeah. Um, that would be my explanation. I, I thought that too, but then he, the, the, the magic does solve the problem. So I was like, oh, I guess it's a weird way to say that. I think it's... Well, to be fair, Dumbledore hasn't had the injured hand for very long true so maybe he still thinks that he can do it and then can't Mm -hmm. i i I think it might be like it wouldn't be out of line entirely to accuse dumbledore of a little bit of like showmanship right here to gain harry's sympathies um of course he knows it's going to prompt the question which it does how did you injure your hand sir 
But the fact that he's injured and weak means that Harry can just brush aside what they were just talking about and immediately go into sympathy mode. Like it's mm-hmm. a it's a form of manipulation, I think, is to be like, well, that's so funny because I actually think it's the opposite. I think Dumbledore realized he made a big mistake by calling attention to his hand. And that's why he uses the magic to uncork the bottle. Well, he has he has zero problems uh, pushing that story off and off and off until eventually he dies mm. and it still doesn't get told that. <laughs> I don't think he's that regretful that he brought it up because he's just like, nope, 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 nope. Another time. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and maybe it's See, just yeah. to bring the attention of it back to the reader. It's just like, oh yeah, I remember his crappy hand. That's that's important. Well, just want to remind the you. other the other thing that I actually was thinking about with this moment because it's a little moment, but I actually think it's pretty important is that it's meant to kind of show to me the arc of Harry and Dumbledore's relationship. And how the two of them are different and similar. Because Dumbledore adamantly refuses Harry's help. Harry does that a lot with other people, too. Mm. For things that he shouldn't refuse their help for. But in the end, we, we start with, we start this book in this, in, in this place where Dumbledore's m- more along the lines of, no, 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 Harry, I've got it. I can take care of it. We end the book with Dumbledore relying on Harry to the point that he says he feels safe because he's with Harry. And I just think that that's a valuable piece in the relationship that Dumbledore gains that Harry gains by the end of the series and still has to go through learning how to rely on others mm-hmm. and be okay with that. Um, I get that from this moment because this moment is like, this moment stands out to me every time I read this chapter um, cause it's little, but, and it really doesn't even need to be there if you're kind of looking at it on the surface, but there does seem to be a lot of layers to what's going on with it. Um, we just pulled out like 10 minutes of conversation on Dumbledore trying to open a fire. <laughs> so I'd say it's kind of important in some way. Well, you certainly opened um, my mind to different ways of looking at it. So good job. Yeah, no, I was just trying to figure out what this like might mean. And I think we kind of just dug up probably three or four good different reasons for why it's there. Yeah, that's um, awesome. So, yeah. But before we dive into the pensive, we have I think we have... to talk about. Da-da-da. Yes! So, Alex, you were talking about how earlier today you were listening to the audiobook to prepare for this episode. Um, I also am a huge proponent for audiobooks, specifically Audible, who is, like I said earlier, a sponsor for this episode. Um, And they are offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. So you should definitely check them out if you have not used them before or looked into them before. Um, Personally, what I do, because I'm either always... Okay, I'll I'll tell you all the places that I listen to my audiobooks. Um, (laughs) In the shower, walking dogs, making lunch, eating lunch... Um, just sitting around the house if I'm bored. Like, there are just so many times in the day when you are up and about or you're on a bus or whatever that you're either just wasting time or you could be doing something with that time. And an easy thing to do is listen to an audiobook. And I get so many more books read this way. Like, I went years 
without hardly reading a thing. And then all of a sudden my husband and I signed up for Audible and he's even out reading me because I'm constantly rereading Potter. Um, <laughs> but I'll look at our receipts, you know, every month. I'm like, oh my God, honey, you've read like three books this month. <laughs> it's crazy. But it's great. It's just, it's super convenient. And we find out about all these books we just would not have come across otherwise because um, they give you recommendations based on what you've read and all this great stuff. Um, and it's it great. Like I was talking about walking, um, it gets you motivated to get outside, get some fresh air and be getting something done at the same time. You're learning something or you're being entertained by whatever you're listening to. And the narrators are fantastic. I've, I've yet to come across a book that the narrator turned me off to. <laughs> they're, they're great. Um, so like I said, helps you listen to more books than you normally would probably in a year. And you can do it through any mobile device or even your computer. So you can take them around with you. And if you've got multiple devices, it will sync up with each one. So it's not like you're at, you know, 50% and then you pick up another thing and you're starting over. No, it remembers where you are. So you just press play and boom, you're right where you left off. You can even make bookmarks if like multiple people in your family are reading the same book. My husband and I have done that before. Um, so I'll make a bookmark where I left off and then he makes one where he left off so we don't screw with each other. <laughs> um, but it's fantastic. And you get it. Wasn't Eric just talking about too at the beginning of the episode that he used it for Fantastic Beasts? Fantastic Beasts, the yeah. Eddie Redmayne narrated version of the Hogwarts Library edition. And uh not only that, but if 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 you guys can uh uh get excited for one more thing coming next month in March. Andrew Lincoln of The Walking Dead fame is yeah. narrating Quidditch Through the Ages yes. as Kennelworthy Wisp. Nice. This is fair. Does that mean Andrew Lincoln's going to be playing Kennelworthy? I think that's exactly what that means, Michael, but we are going to see. (laughs) That's so exciting. Another one to add to the repertoire of books to listen to. Um, And plus, once you purchase a book through Audible, it is yours to keep. You're not just renting them. It's it's yours. Um, So even if you get a new phone, you put the app back on it. There's all your books again. Um, You don't have to like rebuy them each time. Um, So you should totally do the 30 day trial. Check it out. Um, If it's not going to work for you, it's not. But I think it's fantastic and you should at least give it a shot. So the URL you want again is www.audible.com slash alohomora. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash A-L-O-H-O-M-O-R-A. And the promo code is Alohomora. So give them a, give them a, 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 give them a listen. It's, it's good. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't lie. I'm not a liar. I literally use this all the time. <laughs> so you're not Dumbledore. I'm not Dumbledore. I tell you everything. <laughs> More than you want to know sometimes. <laughs> Katie. You didn't spell .com, and now I don't know how to get there. You just said .com. Oh, I'm my lost. God. Okay, I'll do it again. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm actually I'm kidding. Oh, I'm my God. You're messing with me. Bye, go. I need to spell www. That's W. D-O-T. Oh my god, you totally like convinced me for a minute that I needed to say that because people don't know how to spell It's late, guys. My brain is not working. It's all good. But now that we've uh, downloaded our Audible, uh, we can get back to the task at hand. We've got to go into the pensive again, and we're heading to the little, Han- little Hangleton, and actually... 
uh, I think Katie found some history <laughs> on the real Hangleton. Okay, this is hilarious, and I do not know if <laughs> Rowling based it on this at all. It may just be coincidental, <laughs> but it's so funny. I had to cool. tell you guys about it. So in the south of England, near Brighton, there is a town called Hangleton. And in that town, there is a manor called the Hangleton Manor. Its history actually goes back to the 15th century, uh, and it's had many uses over those centuries, but it's currently a restaurant and brewery. So if I'm ever visiting there, I'm totally going. Um, but this manor also has a dovecote, which I didn't know what that was, but I had to look it up. It is a building to house pigeons. And so Harry will never go Harry there. Will never go. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Kowalski might, though. His grandfather kept pigeons. Yes, yes, he loves pigeons. (laughs) I love it. But early in the Dovecote's existence, a monk, who I guess lived there, angered by the droppings (laughs) left by the birds, placed a curse on it. And since then, the building has reputedly been haunted by ghost pigeons. That's right. (laughs) Ghost pigeons. Normal stuff there. And really, why is he getting mad if pigeons are pooping in a pigeon house? That's their house. That's what they do. They're, they must have probably pooped in a lot of other parts around the pigeon house, I'm guessing. Maybe they pooped on his head repeatedly. <laughs> that makes me think of that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail when the monk goes outside and yells at the cloud and the sun and tells them to piss <laughs> yeah. off. <laughs> this guy was kind of like that guy. That is, wow, I want to I eat there. Me too. That, and even on their website, that, they're like, now, when you come, be aware. <laughs> Look for the ghost pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Alohomora field trip to the Hangleton Manor yes. for food. It needs to happen. Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a much more pleasant version of Hangleton than the little Hangleton that we have to visit. It does. That's for um, things are not so uh, chipper. They've got more to worry about than pooping pigeons <laughs> in, in Little Hangleton. Uh, we've got quite a few uh, characters that we meet in just outside of, just on the edge of Little Hangleton. And the first one we wanted to talk about is Morphin Gaunt. Yes, in the the tiny little shack in. The, oh, wait, is it is it Morphin time? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Okay, let's go. <laughs> no apology necessary. That's always going to be funny. <laughs> so that is the first person that Bob Ogden, whose memory we are exploring, bumps into. Or I should say, Morphin bumps into him, jumps out of a tree, yeah. scares him to death, curses him so that pus starts coming out of his nose. That's just, that's not nice. That's not a nice way to curse but- someone. Poor, poor Ogden takes it all very well, considering there's an endless flow of pus coming out of his nose. He doesn't seem to be hurt. I was impressed by that as well. I really was. Yeah, he's fine. It's magic. <laughs> it's magic. He sees this every day. He deals with that with every house call. Right. He, just, he points a wand at his nose. He's fine. It's good. Wipes he's it off. Fine. No big. Um, so we find out that this is, well, eventually we find out that this is one of the Slytherin de- descendants well, Slytherin and Peveril descendants, who end mm. up being Tom Riddle's descendants as well. Um, but I wanted to go through name etymology because I love name etymology. And yes, please. for Morphin, uh, we think this name was probably taken from Celtic myth. Uh, Morphin with an A instead of an I was the son of the Celtic fertility god 
mm, Seridwin, maybe? Yeah. And was a fearsome warrior. Sirdwin. What was that? Sirdwin. 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 Car- it's probably like Carradine. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Anna Castle. It's like you don't pronounce half of the letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let the listeners figure out how they want to pronounce it because I'm I don't know Celtic. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, son of a fertility god. We'll just say that. And he <laughs> fought with King Arthur in the last battle with Carlin, whoever that is. And it George what George, George Carlin. Carlin. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. <laughs> That would be a battle I would watch. <laughs> At first, none of Sir Mordred's men would fight against Morfin because he was so ugly that they believed he might be the devil. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I guess we know what Morfin is in reference to now. That's crazy. Isn't it? I immediately believe that's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're... He's des- he's described by the locals as being the tramp, right? Or actually, his dad is the the tramp of of Hangleton, and they know he lives in the shack. But Morfin, there's just no there's no hygiene going on. You know, no, he's either. he's a grown a grown grown man, and there's just no there's no hygiene. There's no attention to to washing oneself. And uh, Morobi does what she can, but uh, I, I think that uh, on the whole, these are just some very scary looking um people. And I don't know perfect if... that he went up against King Arthur too and that Morphin goes up against Tom Riddle senior. Mm-hmm. So you can A knight a knight that. on a white horse, eh? Yes. <laughs> That's good. I like it. I don't know about you guys though, my my headcanon version of Morphin because he's not in the movie so I have nothing to destroy my imagination's version of him um in my head i see like a neanderthal i don't know about you but it's just <laughs> you, like, do you the... see like the geico neanderthal like yes <laughs> actually yes just the yeah. matted hair like this big you know the the furrowed brow and just the sunken eyes and yeah just lumbering around he just seems like a complete neanderthal so that's that's what i see in my head well, I think I think it's we have to be careful. We always when we're discussing this chapter, we have to be a little bit careful because these people like I picture that as well. But like he may not have like all the lights on upstairs, you know, like these like there is very clearly meant to be some kind of disability due to inbreeding. Um, not all the lights are connecting for him. And yeah. it's you know, he's he's very dangerous and he's interested in hurting others and the snake on the wall he has a cute little rhyme for it um but i mean there's just i think we're just meant to pity more than to be like more than to be scared because i i think that there's probably a lot going on with with this family unfortunately very true my my picture in his in in my head is pretty close to and actually that the description of neanderthal is not too far off Katie, from what I see, because I picture um, Mary Grandpree's drawing. She actually drew drew Morphin for Chapter Seventeen. Oh, a, a sluggish memory. That's um, where his pictures. I was like, I'm looking at the chapter art for ten. And it's just the door <laughs> with the snake, and I'm like, where have I? Because I pictured the the Mary Grandpree's art as well. I'm like, where have I seen that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is there is artwork. Yes, it's 
It's chapter 17. It's a little farther down the line when, when Riddle goes back to the house. Oh, um, Yeah. But now I do want to bring this up because this was a question posited uh, from episode 128. So this is a 128 recall. Somebody asked, was Morphin protecting Merope by attacking Tom Riddle Sr.? No. That's actually an opposite from your answer from the last episode, Really? Eric. I've changed. <laughs> I've grown as a person, you all. Um, I think that uh, it finally happened. Uh, no, no, no. We, well, there's a very specific moment uh, with Morphin where he betrays uh, Merope by mm-hmm. he basically explain he he's the reason that Marvolo learns that Marope has been um pining for this muggle and it's a, it's a big deal she doesn't want him to say anything and Morphin goes goes ahead anyway and says yeah like she's she's into this muggle i see her watch him like come home every day and like this was possibly something that Morphin just happened to notice or further it might be something that Marupi maybe confided in Morphin as her brother mm-hmm. um, and nevertheless it's at the very first second that it can be used for derision and comedy and uh, further abuse of her I mean Marvolo takes the news if you'll recall very negatively goes and grabs her um, physically abused like immediately attacks her for being into a muggle Morphin just got off on the pleasure much like he gets off on nailing living snakes to the doors and much like he gets off on just being very brutish and violence prone and i think that my opinion on him is as changed based on just knowing that you know he could have kept his mouth shut maybe if he had honored the bond between brother and sister to like not tell dad what they're really up to you know like i'm sure she affords him some of that crap as well so mm-hmm. I, I just i i think that that I really see that as a betrayal of her trust, and therefore I do not think he has any protective sort of nature about him. I think that he ultimately would be in, like, the reason he confronts Tom Riddle is not out of protecting his sister, but as like a, I'm going to hurt my sister kind of thing. Like, this is, this is the pretty boy that I'm not, like, maybe it, maybe it has something to do with his lack of self esteem or whatever, like, for his own good looks, but Mm -hmm. I think that he, is not concerned in that moment about his sister's uh, well-being because he immediately gives her up to his father. And he had mm. to know how Marvolo, Marvolo sorry, was going to react. And if yeah. Bob Ogden had not been there, he literally could have killed Marope. Yeah. So yeah. not yeah, I, You know, I think, because I think the question was brought up because Morphin attacks Tom Riddle Sr. and gives him the hives. Um, yeah. And it was kind of posited that oh well maybe he did that to protect his sister and kind of keep her away from this guy but i think that was more out of devotion to his father's ideals yeah. not to Marope. Uh, i don't i think i think morphin has been trained to be his father's protege to basically be a pure prideful of his pure blood and hateful of muggles um I think his father has very much brainwashed him into that. And I'm assuming that Marope doesn't have that same way of thinking because she's the punching bag of this family. Mm. Um, and Marvola would rather she didn't exist. So I don't think he's even bothering to instill her with those ideals. 
And yeah. This is something I don't think I've heard brought up before. It could be completely mm. off. But we we don't see them interact with any other people. They seem to just stick to the shack. You know, Maropi does all the cooking, the cleaning. Well, the yeah. level of cleaning that gets done. And then Morphin terrorizes muggles from time to time. But they ha seem to have no social circle. They don't go to school. Um, they just keep to themselves. And if for generations, cousins have been marrying each other, is it that far of a stretch for a brother and a sister to marry each other? And maybe Morphin wants to keep her for himself in a weird, twisted way? Mmm. That's messed up, but also the chapter mentions in the, incest the incestuous nature of the families. Yeah, oh, It's just something that crossed my mind, so I wanted to put it out there. I mean, really... I guess that makes sense because they're the last ones left. Yeah, like who else they... would have them? Who else would even know uh, they existed? Uh, it, it's uh, good. It's good that whoever Marvolo's wife was died before. Uh, what was I even? Where was I going with that? Oh, because there's just one boy <laughs> and one girl left. I I, I don't know. Woof. Yeah, woof. That's nasty. <laughs> you know, I never thought about that, but you're probably right because. That would make a lot of sense in terms of the dynamics of this family and the fact that they seem to be self-aware that they're the last ones left. Yeah. Um, ugh, oh, that's... Oh, God. <laughs> well, they're even more awful than I already thought they were. I didn't think you could... We could outdo it, but apparently we did. Um, but the interesting... The other uh, thing that I thought might be worth noting, too, from this particular quote, actually, that you pulled, Eric, about when Morphin gives everything away is that he actually, he points out that Marope was hanging out of the window waiting for Tom to ride home. And I was actually wondering, does that indicate that she's already started trying to bewitch him? No, I, well, well, we know that the way that the way that Dumbledore suspects she did it is that he, she gave him a love potion, a glass of water that had a potion in it. Right. But I mean, Dumbledore so I was just only suspects that she does this after she was free. Like she would not act on her impulses. I think she's very much mm. very, mm -hmm. very, very, very passive because she's still so heavily abused that it's only when she's free yeah, of these uh, domineering abusive men in her life that she's able to really pursue her own like, to even have her own identity, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would, be, I was, I would be with Dumbledore on that. No, I think, I think you're right. Actually, I was just wondering if Morphin might have even caught her in an early attempt to get Tom's attention. But maybe at that point, she wasn't even thinking of doing it with magic. Maybe she was genuinely trying to get his. Yeah, attention. yeah, just like a, it's very high school, isn't it? Like hanging out at the locker, <laughs> yes. like hanging out at the lockers, <laughs> and you're just kind of like lingering and leering a little bit you know more at like your crush who's walking down the hall or you know letterman jacket on or you know whatever like i just think <laughs> that that's very much the impression that i get while reading it but it's which raises another question for me do you guys think and we know they you know that these two morphin and and um Marope both have wands did they go to school or were they privately educated did they never go to Hogwarts? What do you think? I don't think they did. I just, I can't imagine they would be in this state. And I mean, especially she's so timid with her magic. 
she obviously has some ability, but she's so scared to use it because she's scared she's going to mess up and her dad's going to throttle her that I, I feel like she would be more advanced and more confident in herself if she had gone to school and gotten away from him mm. for a time, made some friends, learned some actual magic. Um, so I'm of the opinion they were homeschooled, but since we don't know anything about their mother, it's a little hard to, to know for sure. You know, I'm wondering, I mean, do they even know English? I mean, Marvolo does. It might be, but it might come from like a um, a time when the family was a little bit more put together. Maybe he had a couple of cousins or something that were alive and, and maybe there was a formal education or schooling. But my, I mean, because Morphin, we see him resort to Parseltongue more often than not. He's certainly, part of that is lording it over, you know, uh, Bob Ogden, but I really question whether or not he has like fully developed language skills in English. Hmm. And they could be hand-me-down wands as well, since they're so into relics from their ancestors. That's yeah. what I was thinking too. That they, there's no way that though that they went to Diagon Alley and got wands. Like or they're found off the grid. They're very off the grid right now. Yeah. Well, they probably couldn't. We know. Too, they probably wouldn't have been able to afford ones because they've already the 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 family fortune was squandered bef- before Marvolo, a few generations. Oh, that's yeah, that's Marvolo. right. That is a. That's what it's so you're probably right. Yep, these ones are handed down. So, hmm. well, they just didn't have a lot going for them from the start, did they? Yeah, I mean, it's really depressing. Like this chapter is actually really difficult to get. Like if you. What what I find most interesting about this chapter is because it's a a learning moment, it's a teaching moment, it's a lesson from Dumbledore to Harry, and it ha- and it has to do with the subject matter that you absolutely are so interested in as a reader, right? Who Voldemort's relative, like closest relatives, really were that you you're kind of just excited to read this, but it's super 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 uncomfortable. At the same time, mm-hmm. I mean, Mar- Marvolo is physically grabbing Merope, I think, by the neck. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's very rough. Uh, but you're, you're ultimately, I think this has a way of not necessarily triggering, um, as much because you're, you're viewing it from Harry's perspective, who is horrified and Dumbledore is in the room and you still, even though Dumbledore's, even though they can't interact with their memories, you get the feeling that Dumbledore wouldn't be showing this unless it was like, super important so you immediately it's like watching a um dramatic television show where you know it's going to be like really awful and good people are going to get hurt but you can't stop watching because like it might pay off in the end and the good guy or the bad guys might get what they deserve it's kind of like that i think yeah well it's it speaks a lot to how the potter series grew up with its audience that we see that we're seeing this kind of thing this kind of abuse on the page um that we probably would not have seen in earlier books. That's and yet at the same point. time, Rowling never uh, underestimates her young audience, which is also nice um, because I think that's something a lot of parents are apt to do with what their children read. Yeah. Um, but Rowling never did that with her writing and um, kind of logically progressed the things that she would depict and it makes sense to do that here um you know we we talk so much in the early books about did the dursleys abuse harry physically which as my roommate jared pointed out 
why is that a question? Do you guys want the Dursleys to be good people? (laughs) 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 Fair point. But, you know, that the fact that that piece is still debated, um, I don't think you want the room for that kind of debate in this section. Mm. Uh, Rowling doesn't want that. She wants us to know that these characters are as horrible and depraved and that Merope is physically abused because that's important to her development from what we what little we get to explaining tom as a person yep yep so marvolo is the next character that we're introduced to and his name was perhaps inspired by shakespeare's 12th knight character malviolo i suppose I'm really bad Ooh. at pronouncing foreign names. I do Ravioli. Ravioli. What? <laughs> Ooh. Give me the foreign ravioli. <laughs> um, but that character was a Puritan who could not have fun and sought to stop the other servants from enjoying themselves. He is sick with self-love and dreams of getting power. He thinks he is better than the others because he believes he is pure. Well, I don't think that's a maybe if that's... Yeah the case of who he was based on it's pretty That's on the nose literally marvel <laughs> yeah. you know what else i i had forgotten but was reminded of in a recent reread of this chapter is when harry's in the chamber of secrets at the end of chamber of secrets uh <laughs> salazar slytherin is described multiple times as being monkey-like um, mm. and I, I never knew quite what she was getting at. The impression is not that Salazar Slytherin was inbred, but of course we talk about like the Neanderthal kind of appearance that we get. Um, but even Marvolo is described as being in, in sort of like looking like, let's see, here it is. Um, his shoulders were very broad and his arms over long, which with his bright brown eyes, short scrubby hair and wrinkled face gave him the look of a powerful aged monkey. So there you have not just like this underdeveloped emotionally kind of very inbred, you know, deep, deep, deep descendant of Sellers or Slytherin, but that that monkey like that monkeyness attribute could be proof that he is, in fact, you know, whatever distinguishing features uh, Marvolo has. I mean, he got from Slytherin the 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 statue of Slytherin in the chamber supports some of these features being hereditary. Yeah, that's a good point. I never noticed that before, but yeah, I think that's exactly what she's getting at by doing that. Monkey. Huh. Yeah, not snake. Yeah, yeah, Monkey. not yeah, not <laughs> snake. You know, maybe the snake part is the Slytherin and the Peverils are the monkeys, I don't know. Are the monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> Voldemort should have been trying harder to look like a monkey, not a snake. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably true. Makes me think of I uh, I was just like, well then his he should have had a monkey for a for, for a, a pet. pet? Oh my god! Like little uh, what what's uh, Ross's monkey Marcel? Yes. Yes. Oh Marcel. Yeah. Marcel. Or or I'm thinking of the monkey that took Newt's wand as being like the tale of the three brothers retold, but all three brothers are oh, little monkeys, dem- and they like take <laughs> the deathly Hallows and then go run off with them. Um, and then Planet of the Apes happens. Mental tangent. Yeah, Planet of the Apes happens. I was I was actually thinking of there is a there is an evil character in. His dark materials. She's not as well. She's kind of evil. She's gray. Um, she's uh, who has a uh, monkey as her demon. Um, it's like a golden monkey. Yeah. His name is Osmandius. You sure it wasn't a silver monkey? 
With a shrine. <laughs> shrine of the silver monkey. How's Mandy this, though? Huh? Yeah, it's quite a name. Quite a mouthful. Yeah, right? I would have pronounced that um, wrong, too. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a question about Marvolo. Uh, this was asked on episode 128. Do you guys think he knew of the Resurrection Stone's power? No. I don't looks like Alex has an yeah, answer for this. Yeah, I don't this. think there's any way that he knew because this guy loved talking about how much he was descended from the Peverils and Slytherin and if there was one more thing that he could use to prove that he call he says that has the Peveril coat of arms on and that's super important to him. If he knew that ring had any more powers, he probably would have lost his mind any more than he already had. But then I think, like, even if he did know what it did, does he really like that stone's supposed to recall people from the dead that you that are you're super connected to emotionally, presumably, or that you loved? And I don't even know if this guy loves anybody as much as he loves himself. Mm, good yeah. point. What we well, it's inter. Oh, oh, go ahead. What Eric. we now know of how the stone works would indicate. Yeah, I, I think it's a fair question as to whether or not it would work at all for him. Mm. I this one was hard because they uh, the, the, what's interesting is he doesn't say anything about it being a relic of Slytherin he because he knows where it's from he knows it's a Peverell um, ring and that's this is I think that's our first name drop of the Peverells um, in the series yeah. and uh, it's the Peverells tie in so much to the tale of the three brothers and you guys talked um on episode 128 about how much was actually i guess known about how the peverels tied into the tale of the three brothers or even whether the tale of the three brothers is a story that the gaunts would be aware of um what do you guys think about with that huh even if they're aware of them, I don't think they believe that they're real. Mm. I feel like by this point, that knowledge has just been lost over the generations. Except for the invisibility cloak. Although, again, they didn't really know it was a Deathly Hallow. Or at least if James did know, he didn't tell anybody. Well, the Pebbles are where Potter and Slytherin lines meet, right? Yeah, as far as I know, that's the only way. Because yeah, James was the you know a descendant of what is it, Ignotus or the one with the the cloak, and that cloak was passed down through the ages, and presumably Marvolo, you know, the ring, the resurrection stone was passed down through those ages, and the guy with the elder wand, it wasn't passed down at all because he was murdered. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. So I think it's interesting that Potter and Slytherin share that direct descendant. I think in terms of lore, it was probably just known that like the Peverils were strong wizards. I think that separate from the fact that they were actually uh, the holders of the Deathly Hallows, I think that they were famous on their own right for their talents. And then maybe it's like in the world, you hear about these famous um, people. Like we hear about, what's a good example from history? Um, 
Like we hear about Thomas Edison or Albert Einstein, for instance. And then, but if somebody comes up to you and is like, okay, but you know, he was actually a wizard, right? And you're like, what? And it's like, well, yeah, he's, he was super smart because he like could see beyond the realm and had did all these spells. And you're like, oh, okay, weird. So it's like that with the Deathly Hallows, where the Deathly Hallows is a myth. Not many wizards believe it, but everybody knows Albert Einstein because he's like notable. So I think it's like that with the Peverils where Marvolo, like everyone knows that uh, the Peveril line, you know, the Slytherin was, was descended from or that they're blood relatives. But as far as the myth goes, I don't think as many people subscribe to the myth of the Deathly Hallows as it pertains to the Peverils. But they still know who they are even without knowing that story. It's... Uh... I wonder if it is that the and the story seems to suggest this too that maybe there's more of a value on that story and how it relates to the Hallows for the Gryffindor line than there is for the Slytherin line perhaps because Voldemort is completely ignorant of what the Hallows actually kind of their backstory he doesn't really care right about the moral of the story he's just like a powerful wand I want it and Harry actually has to take the time to learn what they mean and what they do and what the real true meaning of using them is. Because um, it's interesting, Katie, that you pointed out that James may or may not have actually known what the cloak was. Yeah. We don't know. He doesn't seem to have because Dumbledore suspected it and didn't flat out ask James, can I borrow your deathly hallow? <laughs> yeah, can I borrow your deathly hallow? Thank you, chap. give me that so and this is i do believe this is the first time we see the ring or the resurrection stone so that's also making its first appearance in the series too Mm -hmm. um so a lot of big drops first and set up for deathly hallows but we look to the corner of this little shack and there is a third person here Poor Merope Gaunt. Let's learn a little bit about her. And yes, listeners, it is pronounced Merope. Gaunt. Not Merope. <laughs> Depends on how pretty you want to be. <laughs> Stephen Fry says it wrong then. What does he say? Does he say Merope? He says Merope. Like he kind of, there's a little more of a Ooh. flourish on it. He says it really pretty. <laughs> She's beautiful. The, my source is, and this actually I think was pretty accurate. Um, the Harry Potter Scholastic website has a pronunciation guide yeah. that was there since like probably 2001. Oh, wow. And it's the same lady through all the years. She kept coming back and recording it. And she she says, Merope Gaunt. She says it just like that too, listeners. You can go to that. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> that impression is spot on. <laughs> Well done. <laughs> but tell us more about Merope. So Merope's name is used numerous times in Greek mythology. Uh, additionally, Merope was a member of the Pleiades. Hopefully I said that right. Yes. No, you said that totally right. Nailed it. The Pleiades sisters, <laughs> who were also nymphs. Nymphs? <laughs> Can't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the word that stumps you after all of this? <laughs> it's a lot of consonants in a row, Eric. <laughs> nymphs um <laughs> and she was shamed eternally for marrying a mortal named i'm guessing sisyphus which sounds like a disease yeah sisyphus um. oh my gosh really <laughs> apparently 
And since her parents were angered, they made her star the weakest of the Pleiades constellation, and it's not visible to the naked eye. That's cool. She got a better deal than Sisyphus. Sisyphus had to push a rock uh, up a hill, and it kept falling, and then he had to go back and do it again. Oh, yeah. You're right. So she got a much better deal. <laughs> she just got to be a star that's constantly... Um, who was it that's constantly coming after her and her sisters? Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody's chasing them through the sky. Yeah. Is it Orion? Hmm. Hmm. Yes, Ar- uh, yeah, it's Orion. Mm-hmm. It is okay. Orion began to pursue all of the Pleiades after Atlas was forced to carry the heavens on his shoulders, and Zeus transformed them in, first into doves and then into stars to comfort their father. Yep, so they're in an eternal chase. That's fun. What? That's just rude. There's a lot of... First of all, dude does not need seven girls. No. Get over yourself. <laughs> and they have to spend eternity being chased by some creep. Not cool. Yeah, I don't think that story would go down very well in today's no. age. That's a that's a hashtag extreme me too <laughs> right. going on there. That's insane. <laughs> um, I mean, but uh, perfect though the idea that this is the one that's she's she's the weakest star, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, her her that light is almost burned seen. out. Yeah. And she marries a mortal. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I, I thought it was worth reading the description of Merope, because uh, she was given extensive description in this chapter. And uh, when she is first described, the book says, Harry realized that there was somebody else in the room. The girl whose ragged gray dress was the exact color of the dirty stone wall behind her. Her hair was lank and dull, and she had a plain, pale, rather heavy face. And I thought this description was worth reading because there was a theory around the time of Half-Blood Prince that Merope was the Grey Lady. Really? That was a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we knew of the Grey Lady's existence by that point. She hadn't been named in the book, but Rowling had explained who she was. Um, outside of, in, in, I think, interviews are on her website. So we knew about the Grey Lady as a character, and we didn't, but we didn't know anything about her. And I know I was a fan of this because she's described basically to be a ghost. She is a Grey Lady in her description. I was so down with this, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry this didn't happen. Like, yeah. I was- <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't strong enough to stay alive for her son, but she stayed around in an eternal ghost state so she could watch out for him at school. You need to browbeat her to get the tiara out of her. Um, <laughs> and, and for some reason became the head of the, the ghost, ghost of Ravenclaw oh, while, while she was at it. <laughs> no, I'm not behind it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, Slytherin was full. They already had the Bloody Baron, so they just said, it could be the Ravenclaw what? ghost. Yeah, there's an opening at Ravenclaw. They haven't had a ghost for thousands of years. <laughs> That's because Ravenclaws are all Because everybody who smart. goes into Ravenclaw, yeah. yeah, they're all too smart to become ghosts. <laughs> so we haven't had one. I love it. <laughs> Not a stretch at all. But I did think that was interesting that she is described that way. Obviously, it is more for the idea that she's 
kind of barely a person at this point. Like she's been so put upon all this time and abused that she's kind of blended into the wall. Um, but we have we have a lot of thoughts about Marope that also a few of them farther down the line will connect to Tom Riddle Sr. Don't worry, listeners. He's he's going to factor in this conversation. <laughs> um, but uh, Katie, you want to start us off? I just love Harry's empathy for Marope so much. Um, when Marvolo goes to like strangle her, he shouts no, um, even though he it's like subconsciously or conscious whatever he knows he's not actually interacting with these people but he's so distraught that he screams out um and then as soon as they come out of the memory out of the pensieve he immediately asks what happened to her that's his first thought his first concern um because he went through so much abuse himself and he has a best friend who's constantly looked down upon by others for being poor and not having the nicest things and all this um so he definitely identified with her, I feel, and had real feelings of concern. And I, it just gave me a warm fuzzy. And I, I love Harry anyway, but it was just another one of those reasons, another example of why I love Harry. I, I think that's... Uh, I always imagine when I read this part that, and it's never described, but I always imagine that Dumbledore looks at Harry very affectionately when he does that. I think Dumbledore in some ways is using these memories because he already... And we see this as Dumbledore goes into explaining things with Harry afterwards, that Dumbledore really knows everything already. Yeah. He's not really wanting for anything. And by doing seeing these again and getting Harry's perspective, I think he's actually using these sessions to watch Harry to some degree and see how he takes all of this in. Because... Hmm. Um, I imagine Dumbledore, this is something that Dumbledore values about Harry, what you just said, Katie, um, that he has empathy for other people. So do you mean, Michael, that um, he they're not actually just together, brave in the murky marshes of memory and <laughs> thickets of wildest guesswork and the, the whole nine yards that Dumbledore already knows it all? He lies! Oh, big test? Dumbledore doesn't lie. Don't be silly. It's the most ridiculous theory you've ever said on this show, Michael. <laughs> I totally buy yeah. that Dumbledore is using this to kind of watch Harry because, as you're saying, Michael, that he kind of kind of beams with affection when Harry does that. I also I didn't realize it was my headcanon until you said it that I also kind of see that you know that that uh, trademark Dumbledore twinkle in his eye where he sees Harry like mm -hmm. eternally standing up for the underdog. Yeah, yeah. We, I just think that's right because we know in Deathly Hallows that Dumbledore, and even here in Half-Blood, Dumbledore just espouses that that's Harry's real gift. Um, so it, it makes sense to me, too, that the other piece here is, and that he's building up to with Harry, is for Harry to have empathy for people that he doesn't think he can have empathy for, um, namely Voldemort. Mm -hmm. um, and as Harry will kind of discover by accident, Snape to <laughs> yeah. some degree as well because Harry will spend this whole book hating on Snape um, even till, till the end and it, uh, despite the mortifying realization that Snape is the half-blood prince and he considered him his bestie um, so yeah I think there's th that's more perhaps what the this moment of Harry screaming no it's another one of those moments like the the pulling the cork out of the bottle it's not other writers may not have even thought that necessary to include, but it's really valuable to tell us things about Harry's character. Mm 
And speaking of valuable things about characters, uh, I actually would love, uh, Alex, for you to go in a little bit to this point about um, Marope's magical powers and the magical powers within this family. Yeah, sure. So, you know, this whole setup is that this whole family is... They're poor, they're probably inbred, and they just don't have a lot going on for them. And they put a lot of store in their ancestry, particularly this that they're pure blood wizards, that their their family is super powerful, that they are descended from the most powerful wizards. But Morphin and Marvolo don't really seem to display any particular special magical skills, and Merope certainly doesn't. And it just kind of makes you wonder how Voldemort turned out to be an exceptionally gifted wizard. And, you know, we learned that parentage isn't a super big deal when it comes to magical ability. Otherwise, you know, Hermione wouldn't be one of the most gifted witches we see as a muggle-born. But it kind of suggests that somewhere latent in the Gaunt family is some really incredibly powerful magic, or else I don't know how Voldemort would have turned into the wizard that he did. Well, that goes back potentially to what we were saying about whether these guys went to Hogwarts. And oh, yeah, that's true. I guess I, Tom actually trained. <laughs> yeah, but I I think there is something to that because Dumbledore even senses that Tom is powerful when he first meets him um, because he has already, without knowing he's magical, has taken full advantage mm-hmm. of his runaway magical powers. He's usually powerful. But I think I think all it takes is a little bit of clean genes, you know, like marrying Merope, marrying out of a pure blood wizarding family allowed some of the uh, genetic disabilities or genetic uh, disadvantages to kind of clear up a little bit. Um, she hit the reboot hit the button. reboot button a little bit, get a little bit of fresh, you know, um, genetics in there and then but then all the most important most dominant you would say traits uh and chromosomes and characteristics of like his magical power like like voldemort is very much descended from powerful wizards but we're seeing them in in a in a state of genetic decay and i think as soon as marope by getting out of the family as it were um she really kind of passes on i mean in general voldemort just gets the best of everything um except for the potential that uh, we talked about this many times before on this show but um as a result of conceiving tom under a love potion it's possible that he cannot love that jk rowling said so and that's the whole that's the whole game <laughs> that's the whole ball game so apart from that mm-hmm. though like he gets his good looks he gets his super talent you know magical talent from the slytherin line well and to be fair, talking about whether there is inherent talent in this family, uh, Katie, you had a point to bring up about Marope. Oh, because... Marope. What were you thinking? <laughs> I get it with the whole anagram thing. Fine. But why the heck would she name her kid after an abusive father that treated her like... Can you not, Nate? Can you, do you not know why? Why? It's got to be Stockholm syndrome. It's got. It's got to mm. be like she is. She was so abused that she still. She she cannot see 
Marvolo as I mean she knows he was abusive. I think if you were to ask her, "Hey Marope, was your dad abusive?" Hell yeah. <laughs> but but she still sees the need to honor him. She still sees the need to name her child after him because she thinks she's doing right. And you know what? She'll do right by her family even in spite of how her dad treated her, right? By like giving the family name on and all it's 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 victim stuff is is all it is she's poor girl paying true i know it's heartbreaking it's devastating but she's she's paying tribute to the man because she thinks either be either because she feels she's duty bound to do so which i think is what which i think is what it is mm-hmm. or she is confused and really thinks that you know she should name her kid after her father who she then misses because he's been dead for a while or you know any anything else yeah like part of me is like well maybe she wanted him to eventually find his ancestry be able to go back and find those people etc um but i really don't think marvolo or even morphin would have accepted him if he had come looking for family and said hey i'm related to you i would like to be part of this family like they're gonna be like no you're not a pureblood get out um yeah but she wasn't really thinking about that yeah probably, probably not Although I think that Eric, I think Eric's correct that she's so damaged from her abuse that she actually thinks that she's doing some kind of right by giving him her father's name. But but speaking about her talent, um, the Mm. fact that she was able to say, I hope he inherits his father's looks and he does like it could just be coincidence. But I like to think that that was actually a magical thing thing she made happen what do you guys think like a magical uh what's it called um uh when you genetically alter like the embryo of uh, eugenics yeah (laughs) like magical Magical eugenics eugenics. there you go wow that's interesting that she may have willed that to occur i think it was luck i think that if if there was magic involved i'm about i'm ready to say it was happenstance because the way that it's phrased at the end of the chapter is uh or the way the way that it's phrased in the later chapter where dumbledore goes to the orphanage is Merope gaunt had got her dying wish the child looked nothing like her um and everything like the muggle that she loved so i think that if it's magical it's because like a dying wish has magical power the same way that a mother dying to protect you has magical powers for harry yeah um maybe but i don't it's not a conscious thing that i don't think Maropi's like taking magic to herself and is like and the child in my womb will have a full head of black hair um, <laughs> i don't think that's a thing yeah well the other thing i wanted to ask with her uh with her powers is katie this point that you had here oh about her mother um yeah mm-hmm. because her father i at least from what we see in this scene, I cannot imagine him sitting down and trying to teach her anything. He just thinks she's good for cooking and cleaning and getting out of the way. Um, mm. I don't think he would ever take the time to sit her down and say, okay, this is how you do, blah, blah, blah. So in my head canon anyway, because there's nothing to say otherwise, I'm guessing the mother is the one that took that role and taught her everything she knows. Um, and mm. then even those little things she's ha- she has trouble doing in front of her father because he's constantly berating her and saying she's not doing it fast enough, she's not doing it good enough, etc. Um, 
Yeah, he calls her a squid. Yeah. yeah. Which, oh my God, jerk. But for right? her, <laughs> I was just going to say, for her to have enough talent to make a love potion in the future, I feel like someone had to have taught her some you know, actual magic at some point. And that's the question of whether maybe maybe that actually is her inherited talent that she actually is good at magic because as we find out from Dumbledore after the fact her magical abilities seem to kind of poof back into existence a little bit more once she's away from her father and her brother Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, uh, ties into uh, what I thought was a great question to ask now and was an excellent question at the time in episode 128, the podcast question of the week was, at the end of this chapter, Dumbledore says that Merope's powers were suppressed by the way her father and brother treated her. This is paralleled a book later when we learn about Dumbledore's sister, Ariana, who also does not show her power. However, Merope's powers simply seem to disappear while Ariana's burst out of her. So what is the <laughs> difference between the two and why do they react in such different ways? Hey, I think we kind of know the answer to this now. <laughs> what is it? Well, we I... certainly know about Ariana. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do you think that? Do you think that um, that Marope could have become an obscurus? I don't. Or an obscurial. Yeah, I don't rather. think so because her father was still making her do magic even when she didn't want to yeah it's only Um, when you deny magic when you don't let magic enter you or flow through you that it becomes a parasite yeah and she has actually he does give her at least he does permit her access to a wand um so she's not being completely deprived of magic like ariana would. yeah her magic is just disrupted by her emotional turmoil she's not being discouraged from doing the magic altogether in fact marvolo yells at her when she doesn't mend something correctly so mm-hmm. yeah so i thought but i thought that was great because that was all the way back way before fantastic beast we didn't have an answer to that so now we do i love that it's <laughs> great yeah good Good question, past, past <laughs> Eric and past Cat and past Allison. <laughs> Good job. Um, but uh, the other thing I we wanted to talk, we want to bring Tom Riddle a little bit into this conversation. And uh, Alex, you had some interesting points here about what happened to him. Yeah, I want to know what he knows. Like he. We understand that he's put under a love potion and him and Maripay run away together to wherever they go. And some months later, or however, I forget how long it is now, a year later, something like that. Um, he comes back and he says that he's been taken in, but he, you know, he's back in action in Little Hangleton and it doesn't seem <laughs> to be spoken about ever again. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, it, did she have the magical prowess to put... Um, a memory charm on him? Did she want to? What did he remember? And like, what did what did he end up finding out? Did he actually know that he was put under a love potion, or did he just think he was like drugged old school styles and you know came out of the fog, so to speak, when she stopped giving it to him? I wonder if he even knew if it was actually magic. 
He's just been roofied for a year. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think he knows. I think he knows, but is too ashamed or confused to put words to exactly what happened. But I think he remembers his feelings for her. I don't really have any basis of that, except I think r- whatever Ron remembers after Harry saves him from the love potion oh, yeah. turned wrong. Um, I, I think that he... I think that Tom Riddle knows exactly what happened. And I think that he probably the after effects of being subjected to a potion for so long, um, he probably still closes his eyes and sees Merobi. But I think that's weird. They just don't. Yeah. (laughs) But like, as I mean, this is the part where it gets sketchy is when you talk about Tom Riddle senior, because Merobi raped him. Like Mm -hmm. this was non-consensual romantic entanglement that led to a pregnancy. Uh, on her part and it was kidnapping and you know lord knows what what, you you could levy some some very serious crimes Merope's direction it's it's not a good thing what she does to him definitely not and yeah I would agree with you that he remembers and I think Dumbledore even says he says he was hoodwinked and taken in because nobody would believe him or they would think him crazy if he said the truth um and the fact that he never remarries, he just lives with his parents for the next, what, 15 years? Um, all of that suggests to me that he yeah. is just completely terrorized and PTSD and all of that and just can't even anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think because Dumbledore, Dumbledore's basing that on the way that he that riddle phrased it to people from accounts he got um so and dumbledore is probably pretty knowledgeable in how muggles try to deny magic or try to um cover up magic um in that case and yeah no it's the the thing that's interesting about tom riddle senior is that he's not in 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 his introduction and we don't see much of him but he's not painted very sympathetically. He's kind of portrayed as the snooty 1% type. Um, But that said, I don't know if that merits everything that happens to him afterwards. (laughs) That's a little bit, I think that's going beyond poetic justice. Like that's, that's pretty cool. Um, what he goes through. Um, yeah, I was sympathetic to Murphy up until I found out what she did, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, screw her. I think that's what's. Well, yeah, no, I think that's what's interesting about both her and Tom Riddle seniors. They're both sympathetic to some degree, and then very much not so to to a, like it's to a point. Yeah. There's that your sympathy runs out for them and how they they both behave. Well, in which way is Tom Senior not? sort of like what do you dislike most about tom riddle senior oh he's clearly not very uh nice to the people he 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 obviously sees a hierarchy um within society yeah the way that he describes the gaunts and their well is he wrong i think he's wrong to say it the way he does um he's 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 just, I mean, there are nicer ways. To, I mean, I or think. Or just like, you know, to, not say it. <laughs> or to like well, not. Well, he's, ta- he's yeah. talking to his high class uh, Cecile, right? Cecilia. Um, Cecilia. 
You're breaking my heart. My heart. Cece. Cece. Oh yeah, for sure. But not Cursed <laughs> Child. Um, the, you know, I, I, I really don't see. Okay, I see it, but I, I think that I, I tend to not think of Tom Riddle Senior as a, uh, uh, a villain, but more a victim. And I think that what my most interesting question, if I could ask J.K. Rowling a question today and have her answer it, would be, what was the extent of the conversation that Voldemort had? with Tom Riddle senior and it would because it, it wouldn't have only been it wasn't just Tom Riddle senior it was his parents too that were found dead via the killing curse um by the muggles in the village when Voldemort eventually grows up and and learns but it must have been so personally embarrassing for Voldemort to you know when his dad t- is telling him this story about how i mean whether he's clear on it or not it would have become clear through his trying to explain under duress that to Voldemort that his mom used a love potion, if that's what in fact she did, that would have been extra embarrassing, I think, to, to Tom, uh, to Voldemort, um, that his mom, like, hoodwinked this muggle guy. And, like, I think partially out of embarrassment and shame even, he might have killed Tom Riddle Sr. right there on the spot. Um, and then in sort of a rampage killed, like, I don't think Tom Riddle senior really needed a bad mouth Merope any more than he like the bare minimum because Tom Voldemort would have, would have just been ashamed about the whole situation. Um, cause remember, I mean, young Tom Riddle is very interested in, in believing that his dad was the wizard because his mom wouldn't have died if she was. Um, and I think that ultimately, meeting his father actually having the conversation would have turned all of his expectations on their head and i think in a fit of rage like uncontrollable rage he would have just killed them all but i don't see tom riddle senior as a villain at all sorry it kind of makes me think i'm just picturing the princess bride like tom riddle walks and he goes my name is tom riddle you are my father i came to kill you prepare to die (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i can't imagine I can't imagine Tom was too thrilled. <laughs> no. Found out the truth, and I imagine he didn't let Tom Riddle Sr. talk much or live very long when he encountered him. I think the other impression that I've, I'm recalling correctly, and I would need to reread Goblet of Fire it. to I've check, got it right in front of my face. I was just about to say that. <laughs> I was going to ask, the villagers of Little Hangleton don't hold the riddles in very high regard, if I recall. No. Correct. Is that oh, right? Oh, what? Their... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Nobody wasted their breath pretending to feel very sad about the riddles, for they had been oh, most unpopular. Ooh. Elderly, elderly <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Riddle had been rich, snobbish, and rude, and their grown-up son, Tom, had been, if anything, worse. I knew there was a reason I didn't like him. That's why it's Goblet of Fire. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the villagers in the pub are, are quite a big class difference from other high society. I think that the other high societans just moved on to other towns. Maybe, like, I would love to see how the riddles were um, adored in London or Paris or Gay Paris or Florence, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I th- I think that's... There, there's something I think to be said for perhaps how not only the uh, pride of the Gaunts transferred to Voldemort, but perhaps how the pride of the Riddles also transferred to him. Mm. Um, this, the, both families seem to think a lot of themselves. Uh, so again, not really 
doing well for the genetics <laughs> as, yeah. as far as being able to be. I think that hints again to what we were talking about, about how Dumbledore values Harry's ability to have sympathy and empathy. And here we are shown two families who are not big practitioners of that. Um, I think that's another thing we're meant to gain about why Voldemort perhaps is the way he is, is because both families that he came from were very much about themselves and not about other people. Mm-hmm. And while Marope doesn't act, say things that way because she doesn't say anything in our encounter with mm-hmm. her, the way she treats Tom does not, it does not uh, suggest that she really has the ability to sympathize or empathize with others. Dumbledore even thinks that she lifted the charm, whether it was a uh, imperious curse or whether it was a potion that she stopped because she thought that he might truly love her. Not necessarily out of concern for his well-being, but because she felt that it was a ruse to her and she wanted true love. Which, by the way, that was another question in episode 128. Is it true love? No. <laughs> I wouldn't say so. <laughs> Did we ask if it was true love the first time? You asked if it was true love. I think more, of of course, on Marope's part oh. than Riddle's. It um, maybe, I think the con- maybe it's Snape's possessive love, right? Wanting something so pure. I think that was your guys' conclusion, was that it was more in in line with Snape's obsessive yeah. kind of love that never perhaps even got a chance to mature into something that was deeper. Right. Um, you know, I don't know what Merope's Patronus would be that would represent Tom Riddle, but I don't think her Patronus eventually became I don't that. think she had a happy um, memory to cast a Patronus. Nope. No. I don't think Mer- Patronuses nope. are for her. Unfortunately. But yeah, I I mean personally I wouldn't say it's if 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 true lo- if if we're if we're defining true love as something of a healthy love no, that's also mutual. I'd love. say no personally. Love. <laughs> <laughs> she the us together. Blessed arrangement. Sorry. That was totally that was totally how their marriage went down too. Yeah, definitely. It was just the Humperdinck version. <laughs> I I think it might be worth closing out the Rope's section though with um a few tidbits that Eric pulled um from some things from the pretty much last bits we learned of Rope. Right. Um here's what we learn at the orphanage and this is from the later chapter where Dumbledore goes. Um <clears throat> This is uh, the woman, the matron at the orphanage. Mrs. Mrs. Cole. What? Mrs. Cole. Mrs. Is her Cole. Name. I remember it clear as everything because I just started here myself. New Year's Eve and bitter cold, snowing, you know, nasty night. And this girl, not much older than I was myself at the time, came staggering up the front steps. Well, she wasn't the first. We took her in, and she had the baby within the hour, and she was dead in another hour. Did she say anything before she died, asked Dumbledore. Anything about the boy's father, for instance? Now, as it happens, she did, said Mrs. Cole. I remember she said to me, 
I hope he looks like his papa, and I won't lie. She was right to hope it, because she was no beauty. And then she told me that he was to be named Tom for his father, and Marvolo for her father. Yes, I know. Funny name, isn't it? We wondered whether she came from a circus. And she said the boy's surname was to be Riddle. And she died soon after that without another word. Well, we named him just as she'd said. It seemed so important to the poor girl. But no Tom, nor Morvolo, nor any kind of Riddle ever came looking for him, nor any family at all. So he stayed in the orphanage, and he's been here ever since. That's a That really makes me think that section that Mrs. Cole says at the end actually, I think, tied back. Um, I think, Alex, you had brought up that point, or Katie, one of you, about that uh, the name might have come with Merope's hope that Tom would reconnect with his family. Not necessarily, too, that he could go find them, but that they could come find Named him. Mer- yeah, that's a fair, fair question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. She thought much too much of her father. <laughs> she expected he was going to come. <laughs> yeah, for being his victim <laughs> in punching bag. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Here's the the then the other the second and, and last thing I pulled from that chapter. Uh, I mentioned this before. There was no trace of the gaunts in Tom Riddle's face. Merope had got her dying wish. He was his handsome father in miniature, tall for an eleven years old. Er, pfft, tall for eleven years old dark-haired, and pale. That's page 263, or 283. So those will be, of course, featured in future memories that hopefully we will get to examine later down the line. But it's fun to have that information now, I think, to reflect back on how that ties in. I really like that that idea, though, that maybe that name came from... Merope's hope that Tom would somehow reconnect with his family. I think that's he probably definitely uses it to connect to his family. Oh, like whatever sure research Dumbledore is able to do, Riddle had to have done it. So she still got her wish. Maybe she wished that he would kill her family because she hated them. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe Katie, maybe she was thinking ahead. In Hell hath no fury light. like a woman scorned. He leave me. Oh. He leave me. I'm gonna set my son on him. <laughs> Tom's actual middle name was, is the it address was all really... of the mansion in Little Hangleton. It's uh, five 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 <laughs> Crooked Lane. You know, it's all really a beautiful, like quiet revenge yeah. plot. Actually, it. it's Kill Bill Volume Three. Um, we're not messing around. Now, I think it's uh, wise that we we end this chapter. We, we cannot forget. One particular individual who I think Alex would like to give uh, the spotlight to for a moment. Sure, this is uh, Bob Ogden's memory, and let's talk about Bob Ogden. Um, <laughs> Please, I, let's talk about Bob Ogden. Yeah, I don't think that he gets a lot of credit because, as Katie was mentioning earlier, how she admires how Harry immediately is questioning, like, what happens to Maripay and how, you know, what happened to her and everything like that. Bob Ogden is the one in the moment also saying everything that Harry's saying. He's saying, no, he's trying to stop her, stop Marvolo from hurting her. And he's, you know, trying to put things right and standing up for, uh, I forget how Harry says it. He says that he, um, he had, he gained a lot of respect for Bob Ogden when he said, what, like, what does it matter if someone's muggle born or has muggle family or something like that? Yeah. And um, Mm -hmm. so his character for one thing, and then totally silly note um, I love his outfit. He is wearing <laughs> a um, a bathing suit 
and uh, what else? <laughs> He's wearing a couple of other, uh, you know, not so appropriate articles of clothing. And to hop back to Goblet of Fire, it makes me think of my other favorite dress wizard, Archie, who <laughs> likes to wear women's dresses. And um, nothing else. Two crush <laughs> matches, and he's great. Um, he likes a healthy but... breeze around his privates, is all he But, on, you know, to really round Bob Ogden out on a serious note, um, there's kind of an old saying, evil prevails when good men do nothing. And I yep. think Bob Ogden always tried to be one of the good men. And it kind of, it, it seems that way in his memory. No, yeah, and for his short appearance, he he does make a good impression. Absolutely, and he, I think it's it's it, he was clearly a good choice for head of magical law yeah. enforcement. I want the Bob Ogden prequel series. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just gotta. Well, there has been kind of questions about Ogden because he's tied in with some other names, uh, including Ogden's old fire whiskey. Mm-hmm. And Tiberius Ogden, who is a member of the Wizengamot. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's a few Ogdens. And, of course, you know, that doesn't tend to happen by, you know, chance <laughs> in Rowling's world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Except exactly. for. But, I mean, we have here a family in this chapter alone who has kind of just been a victim of inbreeding. And the wizards have kind of, has have very much, we know, shrunken their options um so it's not a surprise maybe that the name ogden is perhaps spread spread out within the wizarding world um but yeah ogden's a good guy definitely it would have been it is a shame that this doesn't that this didn't make it into the movie because i think this is kind of a big i love half-blood prince it's my sec it's my second favorite film but i think and I get why these memories are extracted yeah. from the movie. It's a lot of time. To, it would be a lot of screen time to have Harry watching things and not being a part of the movie. Um, because already with the memories that they do use, it's it's a little it, it's a lot to take away. Um, but at the same time. This really is the thing that fills in a lot of gaps that makes the movie more confusing if you don't have it. Yep. Um, yeah. And these re- these memories are written, because it's something that Harry is viewing, these memories are written per- in a particularly cinematic way. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, it's almost kind of begging to be adapted for for the screen. Yeah, but. Rowling's writing, and she goes, "Guys, I'm setting it up so nice. <laughs> you <laughs> should just yeah. like put it in the movie. Yeah. We've got our own ideas. <laughs> We're gonna burn the bar instead. How's that sound?" <laughs> <laughs> but I think we've definitely done our best to really pull out what about this chapter is important beyond maybe the surf, the obvious surface points i think there's it's it, this is it's still maybe not my favorite memory chapter but i can definitely you said see it was your least favorite memory more. chapter now we gotta go through all the other ones with you <laughs> yes now we gotta yay! do all the other ones yay more half blood prince <laughs> i'm up for it too this is i mean this is the that's the thing right about well, i don't know how you guys felt but just opening the book and rereading this chapter i was like i want to read the whole thing i don't want to just read this one chapter i love half blood prince (laughs) it is funny 
because Half Blood Prince, uh, I had this joke all through the reread, and I hope we're changing this impression of Half Blood Prince now, because it used to be that you, when you'd ask people about the series and which ones they liked, and if Half Blood Prince came up, the the frequent answer I got was, "Oh my God, I love Half Blood Prince." I don't remember anything that happens in that book, but I love how I think I have an answer as to why, because this is how I, why on my reread two rereads ago, um, Mm-hmm. Order of the Phoenix took me so long to get through. It's not because I don't like it and not because it's a bad book, because it's just so dense and so rich in information that I read Half-Blood Prince so fast in comparison that I can totally get why you'd be like, yeah, Half-Blood Prince was so cool. No idea what happened, but it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's just because it trails after Order, the behemoth yeah, of the I th- series. Yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, one, uh, to be fair, too, I think logistically, or because uh, this happens, I think, for a lot of readers, even people who have read the series a lot, Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows haven't been out as long, just be, by the nature of being published later in the series. Um, so they haven't, we haven't perhaps gotten the chance to pour over them yeah. quite as much um, over the years. And I think, like, Order, Half-Blood, and Order, like you said, Alex, has the benefit of being so enormous um, and having some pretty watershed moments to it. Where Half-Blood and Hallows, while they have watershed moments, are don't have that larger nature about them. But really, Order, pa- order Half-Blood, and Hallows come, come past the huge break where we didn't have anything for three years. So all we had was to re-explore one through four over and over <laughs> and over again. So maybe that's what it is. That definitely probably has something to do with it. So thank goodness we have shows like Alohomora to re-examine this stuff, right? Amen. Amen. (laughs) And uh, Alex, I think this is the time in the show where we thank you for joining us for the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate having me back. And are you, where can people find you on on the interwebs? Do you have like a personal blog or something you want to show, shout out? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter. I actually tweet with Katie a lot, uh, at AllieCat127. And uh, I'm pretty active on the Harry Potter subreddit to Feminist Cat. And that's also my name on the forums. Feminist Cat. And Alex is in our super su- special secret groups. Yeah. So on Facebook. They're super secret. You can only find out if you do some things. <laughs> but that's yeah. really nefarious. I'm sorry. No, don't. <laughs> <laughs> Katie will explain how you don't have fairies to... at all. <laughs> you don't have, yeah, you don't have to do gaunt level things to get into There's the no group. snakes nailed to the door. It's nothing weird like that. Oh, God. <laughs> but yes, thank you again, Alex. You've been a frequent commenter for these for our episodes and uh, always a great contributor. And uh, when I saw your audition come through for this, I thought it was perfect since you did get to be on as Katie pointed out, the last Super Slither in the house. <laughs> so fitting. Uh, so it was only only fitting to have you back for this one, and you did a great job. So thank you for joining us again. And, listeners, if you would like to join us for future topics, our next topic will be Mr. Ronald Weasley. <gasps> Red hair, hand-me-down robes. Must be a Weasley. He must be a Weasley. <laughs> Funnily enough... 
This was another one that we picked because y'all didn't vote for it. <laughs> y'all vote, go. Hermione, Hermione won by a landslide. Harry came in second. Not one vote for Aww. Ron. So that means we must talk That's for the a- underdog. Yep. And that literally is since we opened up for topic submissions. So yeah, no, you're right, Eric. It's it's definitely a speaks to Ron's position. As yeah, the guys, underdog. if you if you, if you want heart. us to talk about something in a little more, just don't vote for it. Just yeah, and like, <laughs> a way to give Ron an extra complex. Like he already doesn't feel like he's enough, right? <laughs> guy. I've still proudly got my Ron Weasley T-shirt from like 2005 ish. Got his face. Nice. I think it's from Chamber. I want to say is the the face on it it's fantastic i love that shirt <laughs> i never wear it because i don't want to mess it up but i still have it <laughs> <laughs> but if you want to be on the show just like our amazing guest alex what you need to do is go to our website alohomorapodcast.com click on be on the show at the top of the page and follow the instructions to send us your audition uh you can also visit the topic submit page to tell us what you would like us to talk about um like ron weasley <laughs> or we'll just ignore you <laughs> or we'll ignore you and talk about what we want to talk about no we definitely take your comments and submissions into consideration for sure yes K- katie and eric can speak to i have made a document an excel google doc with all of the things you listeners are submitting and i tally the votes and i put who voted for them and so your all of these submissions do count. They truly we count. We appreciate you so much, Michael. <laughs> I just want to tell you. I... <laughs> and we appreciate you listeners for submitting these amazing oh, topics. Absolutely. Um, but to be on the show, all you need is a microphone and a pair of headphones. And if you're chosen to guest host, we will walk you through the rest. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to reach out to us, if you're listening to this episode and you say, hey, that was a great episode, I want to message them, you can do that. Our email, of course, is alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to see what we're posting about, we have a wonderful social media team who are posting fun things for you to interact with week in and week out over on Twitter, twitter twitter.com slash or at alohomoramn. That's A-L-O-H-O-M-O-R-A-M-N or Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore. We are located at alohomorapodcast.com on the web, which uh, is a great website for you to store as your homepage if those are still a thing. And uh, YouTube, <laughs> of course, we have some fun videos over on YouTube, most recently from uh, HP Celebrations and all sorts of crazy hijinks that uh, we get up to. So YouTube.com slash MN is a, a destination for you to subscribe to that channel on YouTube, and then it'll be on your YouTube homepage, which I'm pretty sure is still a thing. <laughs> and that way you'll get notifications the next time we upload new stuff. It's great. Yeah. Um, and one more reminder to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash alohomora. Huge thanks again to Elizabeth Belisario for sponsoring this episode. You rock. Thank you, yes. Elizabeth. You can sponsor us for as low as a dollar a month. And then again, be sure to check out our higher tiers for access to things like Dumbledore's office, episode sponsoring, decals, chapter readings with Michael, t-shirts, chats with the hosts, all that awesome stuff. Um, But thank you again for listening. I'm Katie. I'm Michael. I'm Eric. Thank you for listening to episode 239 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore.
Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> it's like, I'm gonna fix. I'm gonna fix that bullet point. No bullet point. You're gonna be red too. <laughs> Michael is literally battling a bullet point right now. Ah, <laughs> oh, why? He changed the font on either side to green no, to I, red, okay. but it's still okay. green. You got a backspace, dude. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. What there do you do? Ah. <laughs> Ah, there, we, go. there. <laughs> we fixed it. Are you happy? <laughs> off to a banging start. Woo! <laughs> I love watching real time Google Doc fights. 